do this for me. As Mike said, it is good to see your smiling faces. Whether you're here in house or in uh, watching online, I want to give a shout out to Brian and Emily. Brian's watching here in Spokane. Emily up in Canada. Uh, I want to say hello to Andrew, who is uh, Bessie Rundle's grandson, holding down the spot that Bessie and Ben would sit in. This is this is good to be here today. Amen. Amen. Listen, I've been thinking all week. I normally. If I ask myself a question, I, I know the answer, because that's just the safest way to do it. But I, I asked myself a question that I just could not figure out the answer to all week long. Okay, so I'm asking for your help, legitimately. Can you think of a game that you play that you actually win by losing? Oh, don't spoil the sermon, man. <laughs> you, you saw it written out. Yeah, what, what game do you... What, would hearts count? No. I mean, it could. We could argue for it. Huh? Normally you want points. I guess golf could count, too, because you want lower points, but when you score higher, I'm going to say no. Okay? Nice try. You've been thinking about that since Wednesday. Anybody else? A game that you play where you win by losing? Uh, when I was a child, I would say the quiet game. <laughs> the, qui- the quiet game. The quiet that's good. Okay, so you, you win because you get to talk by losing. That works. I give you that. Okay? Have a blessed day in the name of the Lord. We can go. <laughs> okay, so I was going with more traditional games, right? I was thinking football, if you score less, you lose. Baseball, which, by the way, baseball's back, right? Yay. I knew a few people would cheer for that. If you score less than the opponent, you lose, okay? Same with football. Did I say that yet? If you score less than the opponent, you lose. How about basketball? I mean, if Gonzaga isn't ahead on the final buzzer of the final game of this season, they lose, okay? They lose. We will all cry. Let's just be candid. You know, we may want to sugarcoat it and say, oh, it was a great season, and you guys had fun, and it was great playing with Chet and all that stuff. But ultimately, they would lose if they scored less points than the other team, right? Okay, so let's take this into real life. Let's take it into the conflict that's going on in Russia and Ukraine. If Ukraine were to beat the Russians and Russia had to stop fighting, would they claim victory in their defeat? No. No. Now, let's go, let's go, we'll change the question just slightly. Can you live by dying? Okay, and all, the, all the, the, the long-time Christians in the church are like, yeah, oh, we absolutely can. Yeah, okay. So let, let's play the, uh, the rhetorical devil's advocate. If someone is uh, you know, mortally wounded or chronically ill or terminally ill, a, a lot of us would say they'd be better off if they, it just sounds bad to say it like that. Wow. But you know where I'm going, right? They, they, would, they would be better off if they, but if they passed, if they went home, if they graduated, depending on how we, how we want to say it nicely, but did they really live by dying? Can you actually win by losing or live by dying? I've been wrestling with that this week, and I think our, our text says something about it. Let's pray. God, every time I open up your story, I am curious as to what you're going to do. Uh, today is no different. I pray that you would help us hear what you have to say. Help us receive it. And Lord, if you allow it to, help it change our lives. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so looking at the screen, um, what is the name of the sermon series that we've been in for quite some time? Okay, Hooked on Phonics worked for me, okay? <laughs> Not your normal Dear John letters, all right? That's the name of the series we've been in for quite some time. We're approaching the end. Uh, we're getting close. We are in the final chapter of John's first letter, 1 John chapter 5. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there with me. Uh, we believe that the author of these letters is the same John who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, but not just one of the original 12, one of the inner three. You know, the Peter, James, and John. And we have covered a lot in this series so far. Now, I could recap every sermon, but we'd be here till next week, and we don't want to do that. Uh, I will say that Elena's message last week was fantastic. Elena, thank you for giving that to us. I loved your focus on the source of love being God, and I really resonated with your courtroom scene. Um, I am glad to be able to go and preach somewhere else knowing that we have quality, competent, God-fearing, scripture-driven preachers who will fill the pulpit while I'm gone. So, Elena, thank you. This morning, aren't you? Did they clap for you last week? No, well, clapping for you this week. Uh, this morning, uh, similar to what Elena said, the text that we have, it could go 15 or 20 different directions, and it was just as confusing for me as to figure out where to go with it as it was for her last week and me just about every other week beforehand. But here's what I came down to on this week's text. I think that sometimes we win by losing. Sometimes we live through death. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Go ahead and follow along with me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Now, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not only by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Verse 9, since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. And those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar, because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. Well, here it is. And this is what God has testified he has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. There's a lot in there. Yes? There was a lot in there. And as I read this over and over and over, I kept coming back to this notion that, that John is sitting there cheering on this church that he's writing in Ephesus, and he's saying, you guys are the winners. Like, you guys have life. You win. And he starts off by, by saying this by talking about family. I see this right off the bat, right? In verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. 
They're in the right family. Now, this may not be very politically correct to say it. In fact, I don't even really like saying it because I don't agree with it. But there is something about being born into the right family. There's an advantage to that. Or there's a huge disadvantage depending on what family you're born into. All right? So John says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. They're in the right family. I'm watching a show on, uh, on TV. I won't tell you which one it is because you might not want me as your pastor. But I'm watching the show, and there's two key families in it. One of those families seems to have all the bad luck. All right? The, the, the dad initially starts in jail, and the dad's brother, and that dad's brother end up in, in a boat wreck, and, and they die. And the kids that are involved in this, they're not the kids who are going to make society better. In fact, they don't really show up to school all that often. They, they, most of them aren't going to go to the college, but there's one kid, this girl who gets a, gets a job, uh, she starts being excited for her future. She starts uh, planning ahead and thinking, well, maybe her luck has changed. And her dad pulls her aside, looks at her and says, look, you're a Wilson. That's not the name. Okay, I've changed the name to protect the identity of the characters, to protect my identity so you don't fire me. <laughs> All right, that's how it is. Uh, it says, you're a Wilson. You are never going to amount to anything. We don't live in a white picket, the, the houses with white picket fences in town. We live in the trailers on the outskirts. You're in the wrong family. You will never be a winner, this dad essentially tells his daughter. Now, listen, I don't agree with that. Okay, that's not my philosophy on life. I don't think that if you're born in a specific family, you're doomed to be a failure the rest of your life. But I have seen a lot where someone's born into a family that has a systemic traps of poverty and abuse and neglect and addiction, and these people grow up trying to get out of that cycle, but they end up falling back in it. I've seen it too often. And I think what John here is saying is, wait a second, guys. You're now part of the right family. You're in God's family. You're on the winning side. Verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Now, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Raise your hand if you could claim any sort of dysfunction in your family of origin. Any sort. Okay, for those watching online, that's 100%. All right, yes, we can all claim some sort of dysfunction, but John's painting a pretty good picture here. Hey, you're part of God's family now. You're God's child. You love the Father. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, you have to follow rules in this family, but these rules are not burdensome. The word burdensome in Greek literally means weighty, severe, stern, violent, cruel, unsparing. I have seen families who have rules like this, and I wouldn't want to be a part of them. All right? There's a lot of people that say, when you read this book, this is a book full of rules of don't do's and don'ts, and it's a burdensome book. We don't want to be part of that. Well, John says, wait a second. That's not true. This is not a burdensome book. This is not a burdensome family that you're part of. John continues this, this, like, this, this soapbox of, you guys are winners. Verse 4 he says this, every child of God, which he just said that we are, every child of God defeats the evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. Listen to that language. Defeats the evil world. Victory, right? John said, look, you're a winner. You're a child of God. You love your brothers and sisters. The rules that you follow are not burdensome. This is awesome. 
And guess who can win? Guess who can be part of this, he says. Verse 5, who can win this battle against the evil world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We should have figured he was coming back to Jesus, right? Because he's done that just about every section of every sentence of this letter so far. So it all has to do with Jesus. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God puts you in the right family, in the winning family. It gives you life, is what John says. And everybody who's been in church for any sort of time, deep down inside, is like, amen. Somebody, you can, can you say it, amen? amen? Thank you. Thank you. If you belong, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are part of that family, and Jesus gives you life. John draws a pretty distinct line in the sand with this. In the last two verses of this section, verse 11 and 12, he says, and this is what God has testified. He has used that term a couple of times earlier, God testified, God testified. He says, this is what God testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. There's the line. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. It's as if John is saying, you want to win? Stick with Jesus. You want to live? Stick with Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 just kind of boost that. Uh, It says, so since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. God's testifying about his son. All who believe in the son of God know in our hearts this testimony is true. And those who don't believe are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. Don't call God a liar. I, mean, I probably could have preached an entire sermon just on that. Instead, you want to live? Stick with Jesus. You want to win? Stick with Jesus. It's as easy as that. Or is it? Is this what this passage is really all about? Right? Winning, victory, defeating evil, being in the right family. If you just stuck with verses 1 through 5 and verses 9 through 12, we could argue that was the case. 1 through 5, 9 through 12. It's almost like bread on a sandwich. Mike, what's the best part of a sandwich? The inside. The inside. The meat. Right? As I was looking at this passage, 12 verses, wondering where do I go, I think I found that the meat is really in those middle passages. Yes, the the 1 through 5 and 9 through 12 are great. Yes, we want to be part of God's family. Yes, we know how we can be part of God's family, and that's fantastic, but the meat is really in the middle. I started this morning asking you, can we win by losing? Can we live by dying? Listen to what John writes in the English Standard Version, 1 John 5, verse 6 and 7. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, Not only by water, or not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. Now listen, you grab ten commentators, ten commentaries, and read their ten perspectives on these three verses, you're going to get ten different explanations. I tried, all right? I think I got up to like six. I'm like, I just can't. I can't take this. All 10 will, dis- will agree that there is much discussion, much debate, much confusion, and all 10 will agree that they can't agree. All right? Some theologians, some commentators say this, this middle part is really just John's return to fighting Gnosticism. Because if you remember a few Sundays back, Gnostics were the ones who believed Jesus was not genuinely 
flesh and blood. So John's reference of blood is John's return to, no, this really is a real Jesus, flesh and blood. That's what some theologians say. Others say this is really just broad strokes of Jesus' ministry. Starts at the beginning when he was baptized, water, and then uh, the spirit, the dove, comes and he does his ministry, and his ministry ends on the cross, is what some theologians say. And my, my passage, it doesn't say it in the, the English Standard Version, but my passage in the New Living actually says Jesus is shedding blood on the cross. Some theologians are convinced that these three verses are just about the Eucharist, the communion, which we're going to be taking a little bit later together. And other theologians will say, no, 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 it's not any of those things. It's all about the threefold testimony. Because in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, Moses writes that if you have two or three that agree, then it's, then it's a legitimate testimony. It's true. All ten of those commentators, or seven, however many I ended up reading, I could appreciate the angles from each of them. I could appreciate what each of them was saying, but I don't know if they each landed on the exact main point. All right, so I'm going to throw my perspective in the mix also. I've never written a book. I've never been published. I'm not as smart, theologically sound, or as scholarly as those other ones, but I'm going to throw my interpretation into the mix too, not saying it's right, just saying I want it out there. All right. These two, these three verses are surrounded by John's language of winning. But these three verses look like losing. They look like death. And I think John is making that point. Sometimes we win by losing. Sometimes we live by dying. Here's why I make this point. There's two places in Scripture that I could find where the words water and blood were used very specifically, very pointedly in relationship to each other. This is one of those places. Now, the other place, anybody know where it is? I'm guessing somebody knows. On the crucifixion. John chapter 19, who happens to be written by John. Okay, I'm going to ask several questions later on. Your answer is always going to be John. Not Jesus this time, but John, okay? John's gospel, John chapter 19. John is writing the account of Jesus' crucifixion. The three had been hung on the crosses, Jesus and the two criminals. The people who were uh, carrying out the execution wanted one of these guys to die quicker, so they went and they broke the legs of the first criminal, the second criminal, and then they came to Jesus, and John records this in John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Blood and water, you've heard that before? Have you, have you, you've read that passage? When I was little, I went and I asked, I don't know if it was my parents or my pastor, what does that mean? And they said, well, that just means Jesus was really and truly dead. Okay, as a kid, I'm good with that. I'm not very scientifically minded, all right? Uh, you start talking, you start talking anatomy, physiology, you start, I, I took as minimal of science classes as I could in high school to graduate. All right, so I was good with that explanation of water and blood proved that Jesus was dead up until this past week. And I thought, why? Like, what does that prove? A retired cardiothoracic surgeon, I had to practice saying that several times so I could actually say it. A retired cardiothoracic surgeon by the name of Dr. Anthony DeBono feels there's a simple reason for the outpouring of blood and water. And I actually quoted him. It's in, it's in blue. Uh, most of that is like medical jargon that I have trouble saying. So he says, Jesus had a hemothorax. Doctor, do you know what that is? Okay, don't tell anybody else. Um, 
He's got this pooling up on the inside of him from the beating that he took. All right, I'm going to skip like the first 12 lines of this. And he said, it is well known that blood in these circumstances in a still dead body. Okay, so Jesus had been hanging there dead for quite some time. We got another nurse who's like, yeah, come on, James, I knew this. I'm not good at science. Okay, give me a break. It is well known that blood in these circumstances in a still dead body starts to separate out. The heavier red blood cells sink to the bottom, and the much lighter, straw-colored fluid, the plasma, stays on top. So when a hole is made in Jesus' side with the spear, the heavier part, the red part, comes gushing out first, followed by the clear part, which John would view as blood and water. And the doctor says, I can think of no other explanation than the fact that Jesus was fully dead. Blood and water. Proof of death. Now, why does this stand out to me? Aside from it be a cool uh, science, ex- not science experiment. No. I like to try to put myself in the story whenever I'm, whenever I'm preparing. All right? Of all the disciples that Jesus had, the, the 12 that he chose and then the other hundreds that followed him. How many of those disciples stuck around to watch the crucifixion? How many were there at the cross? Let me me ask this. Who of the 12 disciples was there at the cross? John, thank you. You remembered it was going to be the right answer. Here comes a few more with the same right answer, okay? So who would have witnessed Jesus' last breath? Who would have heard Jesus cry out, it is finished? John, who would have seen the blood and the water come pouring out of Jesus' side? And who would have wanted to tell people about that? John, that's right. Because right after this, in John chapter 19, when it says immediately blood and water flowed out, verse 35 says, this report is from an eyewitness giving an account of what happened. He speaks the truth so that you can also believe. John didn't sit there with a pen and paper writing this as it was happening. He came back and wrote it later. So he was able to insert himself in the parentheses in the story. And he says, this is an eyewitness account. I can't help but think if I was John at the time of the crucifixion, when he saw Jesus's last breath, when he saw the blood and water flow from his sides, I can't help but think that John would have thought Jesus lost. I can't help but think that John would have thought, wow, death has the victory today. But you fast forward 70 years when John is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, when John himself has seen the risen Jesus, when John has seen countless lives transformed for Christ, and I can't help but think that John at that point is thinking, Jesus didn't lose. He won. Death didn't win. Life won. Jesus won by losing. Jesus gives life through death. Modern-day theologian writes this in 2011. He said, no other God, no other power, no other being in all the world loves like this, gives like this, dies like this. All others win victories by fighting, this one by suffering. All other gods exercise power by killing, this one by dying. Winning by losing. Life because of death. Do you like being on the winning team? Yes. Do you like being in God's family? Yes. 
Did it come at a cost? Absolutely. And I never want to forget that. In fact, that's why this morning we take communion together, because we want to remember. I want to invite the worship team back up as we prepare our hearts to take communion together. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the abundance. They may have it to the fullest, he says. The way Jesus gave us life was through his death, winning through what appeared to be losing. Listen, if you uh, didn't grab a little cup and wafer on your way in, while we sing this song, which we can sing while we're still seated, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Mike will bring around uh, some bread and juice. Um, But we're going to take communion today because we want to remember this story that Jesus won by losing. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, just this gathered time that we've had so far this morning. We thank you that in the middle of what looked to be lost, you were actually creating the greatest victory in mankind. You were actually, uh, through death, creating the greatest life that we could possibly experience. And we thank you for that. This morning, we want to remember that as we are part of God's family, we became that because of what you did, that loss and that death that turned into winning and life. Help us remember that well this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, we're going to sing a song here that uh, January 2nd I talked about how being, it being the ideal song for communion. But there's a line in there that says, dying, you destroyed death. Rising, you restored our life. Look for that, look for that line. And let this song prepare our hearts to take communion together.